Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, please, to say Chris Harvey, Wells Fargo Securities Head of Equity Strategy. Momentum is too rich for our blood over at Wells Fargo. Chris, what does that mean? So what that means is, <clears throat> excuse me, momentum strategies have gone too far, right? Everyone during the recession ran to momentum strategies. They bid them up to a level that I don't think is sustainable. And this setup is very much what we've seen in 2003, 2009. You have a recession, everyone runs to the safety of momentum. They bid them up to a level that's not sustainable. Recovery comes around and PMs say, oh, I need to get cyclicality. They run for momentum. It becomes a contraindicator. And next thing you know, somebody says we have a 2000 Sigma event, which isn't true. We have a point of inflection, which is what happens with momentum strategies, because ultimately you make a deal with the devil. You, you buy momentum. It continues to go up. It performs. But when it turns, it turns right. very badly and you need to get out quickly. Chris, given the unusually uncertain in the United Kingdom and the United States and frankly everywhere else, what does your revenue and down the income statement call? What's your actual fundamental call on what the right. stock market will do? So our, our stock market call for 2021 is, is very pedestrian. We're looking at mid single digit returns. And what we've been saying to clients for some time is if you want higher returns, if you want more competitive rates of returns, you need to look down the market capitalization, smaller caps, you need to add more cyclicality, higher COVID beta, and you need to start going into the financials. All right, so Chris, right now you say that you're anti-mo, no mo, you're not gonna go with the momentum, the price of admission is too yeah. high, so what do you do with your money? So what you do is, it, it's very simple, the, the opposite of mo is contrarian. You're looking for opportunities that are less picked over, and again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Obviously, small caps have worked and have worked for, for the last couple of weeks, last couple of months. But if you look at a multi-year basis, they've really underperformed. And we want to look for things that give you more value, things that, that will work in a early recovery, more cyclicality. And you can find that in financials. You can find that in industrials. You can even find that in, in the commodity space. So we want you to be diversified, but we want you to have these certain characteristics in your portfolio. Do you stand the United States for that, Chris? Um, you go across the globe. So, so typically when value works, when cyclicality works, it works better overseas. Uh, U.S. is very growth heavy. It's very tech heavy. So I think you can source that in a number of different places, including the states. But I think the rest of the world is going to act a lot better in 2021. Chris, if that's the case, where's the opportunity now? Or is it running away from us? I mean, some of these are moonshot <laughs> trajectories right now. Right, which is why we say we're anti-mo. A lot of these companies have had these parabolic moves. There will be a day of reckoning. The value that you're paying, the cost of admission is just too high. And ultimately, when you have an alternative, when the economy begins to recover, which is what it's doing, people will come back to cyclicality. They'll want the old economy and they'll run very quickly from it. But to answer your question, yes, every day we go higher, we feel like we're stealing from tomorrow. Uh, there's a limited amount of opportunity here and it's getting less and less every day. Anti-mo. You've been at home with the kids too long, Chris. Anti-mo. <laughs> or hanging out with Lisa. Where's, I mean, all the gloom that coming from. Anti-mo. Could not be more right. <laughs> Chris, great to catch up. Thanks for everything in 2020, sir. My best to you and the family. Chris Harvey there of Wells Fargo. 
I can't say I've never done this, but I don't think I've ever done this. We just talk about a jobs day, 20, 21 days ahead of schedule. It's a late jobs day, January 8. Tom Purcelli joins with RBC Capital Markets. Tom, frame up that key January 8 report. How grim is it going to be? Yeah, I mean, look, it's still a little early, but uh, we, we are acknowledging that you could see another decline um, uh, in, in uh, for that December report. Uh, you just haven't seen a lot of real improvement uh, in, in uh, continuing claims. Obviously, we've seen um, initial claims uh, rise a bit, but it's, it's the continuing part that's really going to feed most uh, uh, into the you know sort of what our what our call is going to be as it relates to the payroll report. So yeah, I think I think you're, look, it's not just this December report. I mean, I think the, the reality is. Um, if states continue to shut down, then uh, you're going to see um, uh, perhaps even the January report, uh, uh, the, the report for January, come in, come in negative. So I, I think we're going to go through a rough patch. Now, look, let me be clear, um, and I'm happy to talk about sort of the near term uh, as, as much as you like, but uh, while we're going to go through this rough patch here, we have to recognize that 21 is shaping up to be a, a, a pretty good year. Uh, you know, all the P, or I should say it this way, all the pieces are in place for 21 to be a pretty good year. What does Q2, Q3 look like? When does the service sector go back to work based on RBC research? Yeah, so we, oh, as my daughter rolls through the shot. Apology. That's okay. <laughs> you gave her 10, Tom, you gave her $10. Uh, yeah, you, did you give her $10 to shovel the driveway this morning? Tom, you got to go bigger. You got to go $20. Welcome to 2020. Tom, $20. You got to go $20. They won't shovel it for anything under that. Yeah. Um, and, and now I see through the corner of my eye, my dog is about to walk through as well. Um, we love it. So, um, I, I think the question was uh, about when do we get back to, uh, um, uh, to gaining jobs? And look, I, I think the reality is we, we could be gaining jobs, um, uh, you know, sort of shortly into the, into the new year. You know, it was funny, Tom. I, I think... One of the things that I think is being really underappreciated is think about um, some of the recent reports that we got from the NFIB or from ISM or even the Beige Book. They were talking about labor tightness. I mean, think about that. They were talking about labor tightness amidst all of this. So I think what winds up happening is as we continue into the year, as states start the process of reopening again, we think you could easily be back down toward full employment by the middle of the year. I mean, I, I think that that's a foregone conclusion from our perspective. The, I think the bigger question is, you know, how much progress do we make uh, over the balance of the year beyond beyond uh, uh, the middle of the year? So uh, you could be below full employment by, by the end of 21. Tom, I feel like we're part of your family. It's really lovely, I've got to say. And you're doing a great job just plowing through with all the distractions in the background that you clearly see uh, in the back yeah. of your eye. I do wonder, uh, you know, a lot of people discount some of the data that we're getting, saying it's messy, it's noisy, it's complicated because the numbers are so big and the reporting from states has been yeah. called into question. But there has been a transformation in the labor force to a more technological society. And I was looking today at a story that talked about Amazon warehouse workers and how they are paid uh, pretty low wages and a great number of them have to receive food stamps. What are we going to see on the other side of this pandemic in terms of the transformation and the, and the ability for people to get middle income jobs on the other side? Yeah. So look, I think, again, the, the job openings report is going to be pretty instructive in this regard. And I think what we have to keep in mind is we have almost 7 million job openings um, and, and they're fairly broad based. I mean, again, look, when you look at the ISM report, you know, the ISM report, they're not necessarily talking about high, you know, uh, lack of, uh, of ability to hire for, you know, 
ultra, um, you know, high level executive jobs. I mean, they're they're looking for people on basically, uh, you know, sort of um, in the manufacturing space. Um, and they're having a hard time finding uh, workers in, in that capacity. So there are jobs out there. I think it's just going to take time for, for this healing process to, to, to continue. Um, but I, I think by the time, again, I think next year at this time, you know, let, let, let's promise to have another conversation on December 17th, assuming that's not a weekend. Um, and I, I think we'll, the story will be very, very different. I, I think that it's, you are going to be below full employment by that point next year. We'll be talking about how hot the Fed's running it, Tom, you think, in nine months? I, I, I do, Jonathan. I, I think that, you know, the, again, here, too, we think the conversation is going to change pretty abruptly. I mean, <clears throat> I've said many times, uh, I think even to you all, that, I, you know, Powell is not incentivized to talk positively about the economic backdrop, right? He's he's more incentivized to, you know, say, hey, we're, 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 we're cautious, we're ready to do what we can, and et cetera. But I think... There's going to have to be at some point a pivot over the course of 21, where we move from this, hey, things are you know sort of looking really bad, to hey, actually things are looking pretty good, and we're actually starting to see some inflationary pressures really start to build. We wouldn't be the least bit surprised if the Fed moves away from this notion of you know, hey, we're gonna we're not going to be able to raise rates until 23 or beyond. Um, we can easily make an argument that you could see a rate hike in in 22. Now, before anyone falls out of their chair, I, I think what people have to keep in mind is. We're not talking about, you know, th there's a difference between hiking rates and actually having tight policy. The removal sure. of accommodation in and of itself doesn't mean that you have tight policy. It means that you're removing some accommodation. And so if the backdrop evolves as we think, which is to say, you know, 5% growth with upside risk, uh, uh, core inflation that's, you know, north of 2% and even touches 2.5% um, over the course of 21 I think it's going to be really difficult for the Fed to latch on to this notion that they're not going to do anything until 23. I mean, that, uh, you know, that, that to me is just entirely too far-fetched. Even Powell himself has acknowledged that things in the medium term, that there are upside risks in the medium term. Um, I, you know, that, that to us is he's, he's right to say that um, because we think that there are. Um, and in that context, there's uh, going to be no scenario, again, short of things really collapsing again, that they're going to uh, you know, not be able to touch rates until 23. And, and well, by the word the way, I think we're about to hear. Sure, go on. I don't want to be mindful of time, but I think we have to keep in mind. I think everyone's looking for the steepener in 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 twenty one. They um, are, yeah. I, I look, and I'm sympathetic to the idea of a, a bit more steepening here in the immediate term. But I think as the year progresses, um, again, as you get toward the back end of the year, I can make the argument that the curve actually starts to flatten because I think the, the front end of the market will start to sniff out pretty early that the Fed is actually going to be late to the party, um, and thus I could see uh, again the curve is going to rise in general. But I see. Uh, two-year yields rising faster than tens. And I, you can actually see some curve flattening as the year progresses. So, Tom, let's build on this. Let's think about it a little bit more of the communication that we've had in the last 24 yeah. hours. Is the qualitative outcome-based guidance a feature or a bug, do you think? Uh, I, so I, I love this question. Um, they want it to be a feature, but I think it's a bug. I mean, I think it's really hard. Look, the, the reality is we don't know. You know, Powell's asked, one of the reporters asked him a great question yesterday. And it was basically, and it was basically how do we know, you know, when, when, when we've sort of, when, when we've met your objectives? Um, you know, is the SEP a good, uh, the summary of economic projections, is that a good guidepost? And, and Powell basically said, no, he's like, it's not a good guidepost because he doesn't know exactly what it is. And I'm sympathetic to that. But I think there's the problem with this, this, you know, quote unquote, outcome based guidance. If we don't really know what output we're aiming for, then how do you know when you've arrived? 
Um, so I, I think this whole notion of, of, of shifting the framework, I, I think it's going to wind up proving to be quite messy for the Fed da down the road, particularly right. because we just don't have the guideposts in place. And again, I'm sort of sympathetic to them on some level, but on the other, I, you know, I don't know why mm -hmm. they had to actually go down this path. Um, particularly if you're not going to set up the right guideposts, Tom, and, and we don't know what they are. Within your enthusiasm, do you just assume service sector inflation reverts to its 3%-ish mean? Yeah, Tom, so I, I think it, we, we do. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that people, I think, are, are um, uh, you know, seem to forget is that we, we, we are, uh, um, from a, a service sector inflation perspective, it just persistently runs at around a 3% pace. Um, and guess where we have a lot of room to make up from a spending perspective in 21? Services, right? Goods have killed it. Uh, yeah. you know, they're well north of where we were pre-COVID. Services is the laggard. Um, and that's going to be the area that we really make okay. up for from a consumption so, so Tom, if services are lagging, does that mean you pay $50 to your daughter to shovel the no. driveway? <laughs> Actually, that's why she just ran away. She, she's going right now to do that. <laughs> Hold it out for 60. <laughs> exactly. Who we really want to meet is young Preston Porcelli, who I understand is up 45%. He's, he's unbelievable. He's date on the yeah, NASDAQ. Is he, is he around, he's Tom? It. He's crushed it this year. <laughs> he has. Tom Porcelli, great to catch up, sir. From RVC. Send our regards to the family. Tom, thank you. Thank you know what I love about this year? There's only one thing I love about this year, because this year's been terrible for so many reasons for everybody. How natural that's now become. Do you yeah. remember when they yes. had that interview yes. over in Hong Kong several yes. years ago and the child walked in and it was like, whoa, there's a child in the room. And then at the start of this, everyone was like, whoa, there's a... now it's just, yeah, everyone's working at home. <laughs> who, who else is going to come in? Bring the dog. Right now, we're going to migrate to this pandemic and to what to do. What to do can be personified by a given restaurant in New York, in Chicago, in L.A., and points in between. The lieutenant governor of the Empire State is Kathy Hochul, and she joins us uh, this morning on any number of topics. Kathy, there's snow in New York. It's not going to work outdoors today. It's not going to work indoors either. How badly does small business how badly do local and state need this fiscal uh, stimulus? We desperately need it. I've been saying this for months. Governor Cuomo has been saying this for months. Governor Cuomo leads the National Governors Association, a bipartisan group. Every one of them, Republicans and Democrats, have been clamoring for help from Congress to give to state and local governments, but also direct relief for our small businesses in particular, I was in the city just yesterday, day before. The restaurants, I sat down with the restaurant owners. They are starving. They are literally starving. We have to help them. The federal government mm -hmm. can right now help with a stimulus plan. It doesn't help the state and local governments, which is pathetic. Okay. It's an abdication of their responsibility, so we are in trouble. But at least get some money to the small businesses. Right now, the reporting, including our Kevin Cirilli, is state and local aid won't be in this bill. I guess it's going to get done. You know the timeline as well. What is your and Governor Cuomo's timeline to where things fall apart if you don't get aid in the stimulus? We, right now, our expectations are that it's not going to be in there, is what we're being told, unless there's some uh, 
you know, holiday gift that's going to come our way, which we pray for. But if we manage our expectations and it doesn't come, what we're going to do is to be able to allocate $1.5 billion of state money to the essential services that otherwise would not be funded. You cannot have a plan to have a mass distribution of vaccinations throughout the state and at the same time cut health care workers from hospitals and clinics. It doesn't work. So we're planning on a Joe Biden presidency. We expect that we'll be able to get more help from uh, from the federal government. And I'll tell you, it all comes down to Georgia. It's amazing that the destiny of New York State is going to come down to who wins the election in the Senate races in the, in the runoffs in Georgia in early January. If, it's, if we can have a majority of Democrats, they understand this, they've lived this, they, they actually have empathy for people, they'll be able to get the job done. Uh, short of that, uh, we're going to have to deal with this in our budget in March. And we'll have to make serious, serious cuts at that time. But right now, we're just not going to do. We're not going to lay off teachers. We're not going to lay off healthcare workers. We're not going to lay off police officers right now, just because Washington is failing abjectly. So we're going to get it done in New York State. We'll be in financial trouble, but we'll have to deal with it in our budget in March. All right, let's talk about what that means. You say major cuts. Does it also mean raising taxes? That is absolutely on the table. The last thing we've wanted to do in New York State is to raise taxes, particularly in these troubled times. We understand that that is not a good plan B, plan A. If it's not a good plan B, it's not a good plan C. But we may get to that point if we don't get that that essential assistance from the federal government to help offset the $15 billion that we're now facing, the hole we're facing. Uh, We're going to need to do something. We don't want to have to do that. The federal government can alleviate that. Again, this is not because of how New York manages its finances. This is because of a global pandemic. This is not anything we had any control over. We're doing the very best we can. And when we get this vaccine out, I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, New York State will be the very first state to be COVID-free because we're going to be very aggressive about this. That should be good news to businesses in New York to know that states across this country are not going to be where we are in a few months. We're going to be very aggressive about this. Well, but it requires us to have money for health care workers to get that vaccine in people's arms. So let's talk about the process of rolling out the vaccine. You said that New York State will be among the first. What is the timetable for the rollout as you see it now? It's going on right now. We have different phases. We are in phase one, which is nursing home residents, staff, high-risk hospital workers. Those are literally out there uh, being administered in hospitals all over the state of New York. And we're proud that New York State had the very first uh, individual, one of our frontline workers in Queens, be the first in the nation. So we're excited about that. So we are also planning for phase two. Phase two will be essential workers and uh, priority general public, meaning those with uh, comorbidity, underlying health conditions. So we'll be focusing on them as well. So we don't think that's going to come until later January. But I'll tell you, if we can get more supplies, uh, again, this would be a wonderful gift. If we can get more supplies when Moderna gets approved and Pfizer is able to come up with more, we will have no problem getting this uh, out to New Yorkers. We have a very aggressive plan that we've been working on since last July to get this into communities all over the state and in rural areas and in communities of color that have been hardest hit. We're going to have to overcome a lot of uh, reluctance, and that's part of our public relations campaign that's going on uh, as we speak. Lieutenant Governor, we only have so much time, about 60 seconds left, but if you could tell me where we are just in terms of considering another lockdown. We've heard a lot about that in the last couple of weeks. What's your take at the moment? We don't have to do that. 
we, there's, there is a plan. If people right now change their behavior, those who've been ignoring the mask mandates and ignoring our, our request that they stay socially distanced, if they change their behavior, literally we can get through these holidays and we'll start seeing a decline. Right now, New York State is about 6% infection rate. Uh, that is still the fourth lowest in the nation, so I give a lot of credit to New Yorkers for adhering to this. But it's trending upward, and we're worried about hospitalization capacity. Right now we're at about 25% for the state uh, available, and if that yeah. starts getting much lower, then we have to talk about shutdowns. But that is not our that that is where we hope not to end up, and we're not going to talk about that right now because we don't know what the behavior of people will be over the holidays. So we can't control that. Individuals can control that, and we may not have to talk about any more shutdowns. That is the last thing we want to do here in the state of New York. Kathy, thank you. New York Lieutenant Governor there, Kathy Hochul. Mm-hmm. Kathy, thank you very much. Long ago and far away, and John Farrell knows this from his math at Warwick, and Stephen Stanley lived it with Amherst Pierpont. It was called plug and chug. You got a formula, something Newtonian, and you throw in the data and come up with an answer. Stephen Stanley, can you plug and chug now on the American economy? Can you take the data, throw it in, and actually come up with an outlook? Not if you're using your pre-pandemic formulas. There's no doubt about it that the data have changed. I think with the claims numbers, you know, a big part of the issue is the changes in the program, the extra benefits that were on offer um, earlier in the year just led to a lot of unusual activity, people filing that weren't eligible before, probably a lot of people filing that didn't, you know, shouldn't have gotten benefits. So the levels of those claims numbers are definitely off. Um, but I think to Mike's point from before, the fact that it is rising is consistent with what we're seeing out there, which is that as the pandemic intensifies, um, you're starting to see a little bit of retrenchment in some of those high-contact industries. Things moving in the wrong direction, Steve, and it's December 17th, it's still early, but if you had to pencil in a call for the payrolls report for this month, what would it be right now? Yeah, I have my forecast, but I'm going to say probably um, still positive, but certainly weaker than in November. Um, I think, you know, the, the areas that are most sensitive to the pandemic, restaurants and some of the service categories are probably going to be down in December, but there's still, you know, a good amount that's going on that's good in the uh, in the economy right now. Certainly, housing, I think, manufacturing, um, and some other categories. So we'll see how it plays out. But I think, you know, the the markets have concluded that whatever happens in November, December, um, things are going to turn up next year. So you know, I think in some ways it's less important now what happens in the near term because of the prospect of vaccines experience, the experience of this year, Stephen, that we can turn the economy off, turn it back on again, and it will snap right back really quickly. And that the parallel is not what happened 10 years ago in the financial crisis. It's what happened maybe in China through this year. If we can get a vaccination program ramped up, then what China has managed to achieve, we can achieve in Europe and the United States. Do you share that view, Stephen, that I've heard so many times in the last couple of weeks? I absolutely do. I, I thought that from the beginning that the recovery would be faster and uh, more vigorous than than most people thought. I mean, that was certainly true in the spring and summer. Um, we've had a bit of a setback now, which is understandable given the evolution of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, I, I do see the economy getting back to something close to normal in the second half of next year. One thing that John was talking about is this churn that we're seeing in the labor market. Initially, people who are getting laid off were the lower wage workers. Is that changing? I mean, is this churn leading to more higher paid uh, wage, uh, higher paid wage uh, employees getting laid off and trying to find something perhaps with lower income? 
Well, I mean, I think the the, the impetus at the margin um, is still going to be that low paid. It's a, it's those high contact industries. I mean, restaurants is kind of the poster child for that dynamic, and those are still going to be mostly uh, lower wage jobs. I, I I think the you know the white collar. Um, phenomenon that you discussed is one that's going to be much slower moving. So it is there in the background, but it's going to get overwhelmed most months, I think, uh, until the pandemic is done, simply because the, the greater churn is occurring in those service industries. Meanwhile, given the uncertainty that you were talking about, Stephen, with respect to the actual numbers, when do they matter? When do they change the trajectory of the recovery to you? Well, I, I think when when we've kind of turn the corner on the pandemic, really. I mean, it, it sounds like from the public health officials that we're talking about probably the spring when most people will have access to a vaccine. And I think at that point, you know, the the um, th that's when we're really going to have a sense of how much of what we've seen is going to be structural as opposed to just strictly short term. Uh, and I think that's the real question from the market's perspective. I mean, do you, do you get all the way back to where we were in February of 2020, or are you only going to get partway back? Are you going to have an unemployment rate at 6% or 5%? Um, and, and, you know, I think that's really the question at this point that the markets are probably most focused on um, heading into next year. Stephen Stanley, you've got a great clarity about what they do, not what they say. What are corporations in America doing right now? Not the PR, not the lip service, not the CEO blather. What are they really doing in terms of investment and in terms of strategy given this economy? Well, I mean, the, the, certainly the durable goods numbers that we've gotten so far this year have been surprisingly and consistently better than expected. So investment, especially in equipment, has been um, I think encouraging. It suggests that businesses are willing to look past this. And, and certainly I think businesses have a longer uh, time horizon in their decision making than most households. So that makes sense. Um, again, as the, as the hope that we can get back to something close to normal uh, gets closer and closer, I think businesses are going to get back more and more toward a uh, business as usual approach. That's, I think, you know, to your point, though, that's mostly for big businesses. If you're a small business and you're in one of these sectors that's being restrained by um, social distancing rules, then obviously it becomes a day-to-day, -day, uh, maybe week-to-week -week, uh, endeavor just to stay alive. So, um, you know, hoping to see something from Congress this week. Uh, but there are a lot of businesses, yeah. I think, that are just hoping to make it to next month and, and next year. Small business in the labor market certainly asking for it much, much more loudly in the last couple of weeks. Stephen, thank you. Stephen Stanley, Amherst Pierpont, Chief Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.